0: The Oregonian does report that New Jersey State Police were investigating possible links between Bundy and the unsolved slayings of two coeds beaten and stabbed on Memorial Day weekend in 1969.
1: The Memorial Day stabbing deaths of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry say they've been in almost
0: constant communication with Michigan State Police. Those contacts have been intensified with the arrest of 22-year-old John Norman Collins. Thomas R. Walden of Cairo, Georgia is wanted for questioning in the case primarily because he happens to have a criminal record and was in the resort area when Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were brutally knifed to death. Although they officially remain unsolved, serial killer Ted Bundy has long been suspected in the murders of two co-eds the Jersey Shore. He
1: had a bed and breakfast in Ocean City, New Jersey. The two were later found strangled and stabbed near the Summers Point Ocean City exit on the Garden State Parkway.
0: Brennan and his staff remain firm in the belief that the man who wore this skin-diver type wristwatch is the actual perpetrator of the brutal killings. Mr. Davis and I are offering a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of our daughters. It was two weeks into the Perry and Davis murder investigation and the New Jersey State Police were growing desperate. Facets of the case that they had initially hoped to keep secret, the police released to the newspapers instead, increasingly reliant on the public's help. On June 14, 1969, the Atlantic City Press reported that a witness had seen Susan and Elizabeth in their convertible together with an unidentified driver behind the wheel at about 6 a.m. just after they'd left the diner. According to the witness, the car was moving very slowly with one girl seated in front and another in the back. Atlanta County Prosecutor Robert McAllister confirmed that the New Jersey State Police had twice questioned this witness. When asked to confirm whether the person driving the convertible was a young male, McAllister replied, I can only be quoted as saying no comment. We have our reasons, he added. We've had several reports that the girls were seen in other areas. This pinpoints their location. The Philadelphia Bulletin narrowed the scope of where the witness had actually seen the car near milepost 31.9. The Philadelphia Daily News, however, reported that while driving on the parkway, the witness had noticed a young woman at the wheel and another, presumably Elizabeth Perry, seated in the back with the young man seated in the passenger seat next to Susan. The Atlantic City Magazine, however, reported that Susan's convertible was parked on the parkway's shoulder near the crime scene. A young woman, the article read, was in the driver's seat and the other girl in the back. In the front passenger seat was a young man wearing a white t-shirt. Two days later, police decided to release more of this witness's account. According to a report in the Atlantic City Press, Detective Bob Saunders said that police were seeking the driver of an old black Pontiac seen parked in front of the slain girl's car. The witness said he saw the two cars while traveling north on the parkway between 5.30 and 6 a.m. This account conflicts somewhat with the Philadelphia Inquirer report, wherein Lieutenant Brennan was quoted as saying, We have witnesses who saw the car at 6.15 a.m. Among the interesting revelations posed by the eyewitness account, Lieutenant Brennan must have considered this. When providing their statements to police, why didn't the three young men in the tan Mustang recall seeing the black Pontiac park two cars ahead of them? Could the driver of the Pontiac have pulled over Susan and Elizabeth while the three men in the Mustang slept, then murder both women, managing to flee before the three men woke? Assuming the murderer had been the person driving the black Pontiac, why would he pull over in plain view of a parked Mustang with three occupants, especially when he had a vast stretch of woods alongside the highway where he could pull over and murder the girls without the presence of potential witnesses seated in the parked car nearby? Beginning at 4 p.m. on Friday, June 20th, the New Jersey State Police set up a special command post at the Summers Point traffic circle stationing an emergency operations trailer on a grass apron between both entrances of the Circle Liquor Store parking lot. The post was manned by troopers 24-7 that weekend so that any witnesses could stop by and offer information. A large white sign leaning on a cement post near the back of the trailer facing oncoming traffic read, Wanted. Co-ed murder information. Stop here or call. Investigators were initially reluctant to divulge details about the dive watch found at the crime scene for the same reason they withheld disclosure of the bra possibly used to restrain Susan and kept quiet the existence of the witness who'd seen a young man in the car with Susan and Elizabeth near milepost 31.9. That is, they might need the information to ferret out liars and deceitful suspects during interrogations and lie detector tests. Initially, they would only confirm that the watch was of the variety used by skin divers and surfers. But with the investigation bearing no fresh leads, state police again were growing increasingly reliant on the help of civilians. On Friday, the last day of June, they distributed a picture of the watch to the newspapers. Waterproof and shock absorbent, the watch face was attached to a time elapsed band, a rotating outer bezel that gauges how long a diver has been submerged underwater. The watch had been found in generally good condition, though without a band. No engraved serial number on the back plate meant that it couldn't be traced to any specific jeweler and also signified that it wasn't military-issue. Although the manufacturer, Benris Company, did in fact produce a military-issue dive watch in the late 1960s for use by soldiers, the model found at the crime scene was available for retail purchase at stores throughout the country. According to Rock Scarfo, a watch restorer from Swanee, Georgia, who served as a crew chief with the U.S. Air Force during his tour of duty in Vietnam, the Belfort 666 found at the crime scene would have been manufactured between 1965 and 1968. The model, he told me, was seen on the wrists of, quote, river rats, unquote, on the Mekong Delta, general infantrymen, and at PX bases in America and abroad because its waterproof casing resisted heat and humidity. But a watch like this might have been sold at a stateside military base exchange, and detectives had already checked with bases in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, questioning and clearing all personnel on leave at the time of the murders. Quote, This type of watch was really, really popular with soldiers. Oh, close quote. I was told by Scarfo. The timepiece was so fashionable Scarfo said, that many soldiers would remove the watch face from its rubber strap and have Saigon street vendors customize them with leather bands and colorful battalion insignia. By the time the New Jersey State Police released a photo of the watch to the local newspapers, however, they already had a strong lead as to its likely owner. Although the police implied that they were seeking his identity, they may have been trying to locate him instead. A young woman had called the state police in 1969 and the days following the murders. She was adamant she knew who owned the watch, for she had seen him wearing it. I was at work one day in 2006 when a secretary in my office delivered me a fax. Normally every form of communication that is processed by our office has a file number attached. I've since misplaced this particular piece of paper, but I remember what it read as though I had received it yesterday. Dear Mr. Barth, the fax read. It is my understanding that you are researching the murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. I'm certain I know who killed those girls, as I've been trying to tell the New Jersey State Police what I've known all these years. The person who killed those girls is named Ronald Thomas Walden from Cairo, Georgia. I immediately called Francine Latkin, the author of this random facts, in what would be the first of two dozen or so conversations we would have about the murders. In June 1969, Latkin, then 20 years old, was seated at her desk, processing claims at the local social security office where she worked, located at the corner of Texas and Pacific Avenues in Atlantic City, New Jersey, when the radio news bulletin piped in through the office intercom. The slain bodies of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry had been found. During this time period, Latkin was living at her parents' home in the farming community of Hamilton, New Jersey, not far from the Garden State Parkway. The news that one of the victims was the same age as she and also had long, dark blonde hair resonated with Latkin while the reporter spoke of the local tragedy. But it was another aspect of the crime, something the reporter didn't mention, that circled in Latkin's mind, kindling her memory as she sat silently at her desk. She was unable to continue working as she suddenly drew the connection, recalling something that her friend and co-worker Kathleen had told her earlier that same morning, about a handsome young man the three girls had met a short time ago while vacationing together in Florida. In April that year, about a month and a half before the Parkway murders, Latkin was joined by her sister Mimi and their friend Kathleen as they flew down to Florida for spring break. At the time, Fort Lauderdale was the spring break capital of the world. Eager to join the fun, the three girls booked a room for the week at the Lauderdale Beach Hotel near the famed A1A Strip. They spent the next several days tanning poolside and partying the evenings away at the many bars along the beach. One night while they were at a local hotspot, the three girls were approached by a tall, strapping young man with sandy blonde hair, mutton-chop whiskers, and light blue eyes. He introduced himself as Ronnie Walden. He seemed harmless enough at first, an easygoing, glib, 22-year-old country boy who knew how to use his southern charm and rugged good looks to swoon young women from northern states. After introductions were made, Latkin, her sister Mimi, and their mutual friend Kathleen spent a better part of the evening dancing and drinking with Walden and his two friends. Phone numbers were exchanged, and a few days later, Walden invited the three girls over to his place for dinner. Walden's house, a rental he shared with two buddies and a fourth roommate named Robert Shelton, was a typical bachelor pad of the free love era. Swirling wisps of marijuana smoke curled beneath the ceiling lights. Bikini-clad young women and long-haired men traipsed through the kitchen, pausing to chat with Walden and his guests as he cooked dinner. The only peculiar thing about Walden, Latkin observed, was the way that he often referred to himself by different names, such as Chad and Chad Shelton. His favorite alias, however, was Bat Masterson, an Old West sheriff who was deputy marshal to Wyatt Earp. Although Walden seemed like a sly maneuverer, Francine Latkin kept her thoughts to herself. After all, both her sister and their friend Kathleen seemed to be enjoying his company, and the last thing she wanted to do was to ruin a good time. As she was seated next to Ronnie Walden while they ate, Latkin was drawn to the attractively styled watch worn on his right wrist. He told her it was a skin diver watch and held out his arm for her to view it. She noticed that the watch face, snapped onto a leather band, had been stamped with the word jewels, even though it wasn't adorned with any diamonds or gold. As Latkin examined the watch, Walden kept complimenting her and reaching over to caress her hair. At this point, Walden's flirtatious behavior didn't make Latkin uncomfortable as a general ease permeated the scene. But then Latkin's sister Mimi spilled a small bit of red wine on the white carpet underneath the dining room table. The seemingly laid-back Georgia boy suddenly exploded, silencing the table as he began screaming at Mimi. Even as the moment passed seconds later, with Walden hurrying to blot the stain, his unexpected outburst frightened Latkin. She was unable to shrug off what she'd just seen, as if the stranger seated beside her was possessed of a lingering evil only she could sense. One day in April that year, just a few weeks later, after Latkin, her sister, and their friend Kathleen returned to South Jersey from Fort Lauderdale, Latkin learned from Kathleen that she had stayed in contact with Ronnie Walden and that he would be in the New Jersey area the following day as he was thinking of staying for a time and getting a job in the shore area. He had told Kathleen that he needed money, so she called her friend, the owner of a man and a woman clothing shop on the Atlantic City boardwalk. He agreed to hire Walden and give him a room above the store where he could crash. Here is the first part of my conversation with Francine Latkin, as she relives for us the day when Ronnie Walden first arrived in Atlantic City.
1: He had just come to town, you know, maybe the day before or whatever, and he came by with his Oldsmobile 442, yellow with black stripes on it. Uh, wanted to see Kathy, and um, he came to the front desk, and they said she was busy. So Kathy said, "Go out. Would you just t- talk to him and tell him I'll be out in a few minutes?" So, but he was parked in a in an area where you weren't allowed to park. And it said there was all these signs. So I said, Ronnie, you're going to have to leave. Move the car. And he got really, really mad then, too. And against my better judgment, I sat in the car with him next to wall in the front seat. And I said, I'll show you where you can park. And then you can just wait for Kathy to be done. And he got really mad, so he Revved the engine and it was. It sounded like a motor car, kind of like a real hot shot kind of car with a loud engine. And he revved up the engine and he slammed on the brake. He went back and forth to get out of this parking spot that was kind of had closed in on him a little bit. And when he stopped real suddenly, the knife from underneath his um, driver's seat slid out, and it was in a a Um, leather uh, sleeve, I guess you would call it, I don't know what the terminology is. And uh, he just quickly just put it back. He he didn't want to call any attention to it. I said, what do you need that for? He said, oh, never mind. And that was that was that encounter.
0: On the day she was listening to the local radio station on the office intercom, stunned to hear that Susan and Elizabeth were found, After she rewound the images of Ronnie's outburst, raging at her sister and the thought of the knife sliding out from under Walden's seat and heard the announcer say that both women had been stabbed to death, Francine Latkin was immediately reminded of how quickly the sly drifter had fled town just as news broke of their disappearance. A certain image of the Georgia boy coalesced and like an epiphany, as Latkin continued listening to the news story on the radio, the more she felt in her heart, that Ronnie Walden had murdered Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. Unbeknownst to Latkin, by the time she heard the news bulletin, a police report had already been filed by Chief Mario Ferrani of the Atlantic City Police Department. Samuel Einstein, Walden's employer at the Boardwalk Clothing Store, told police that on June 5th, that same day, Walden had agreed to sell him a motorcycle in exchange for $700 worth of clothing and $200 cash. Walden accepted the clothes and the cash, but never turned over the motorcycle. The newspapers reported that Walden had been driving a 1969 Oldsmobile, comporting with Francine Latkin's memory of what he was driving when he arrived at the Social Security office where she worked, but with a stolen motorcycle attached to a trailer. Acting on her hunches, soon after she heard the news bulletin at her office, Latkin notified the New Jersey State Police. She is uncertain whether she drove to the temporary investigation headquarters in Absecon, to the Hamilton Troop A Barracks, which housed the Criminal Investigation Division. She was led into a spare room with a two-way mirror and questioned. Here is the second part of my interview with Latkin as she recalls being interviewed by detectives in June 1969.
1: So when I went in, I told them what what I knew about him and that he left real quickly right at around that time, right after the murders. uh, And... I told they asked me about his personality, and why I thought. I said I don't know exactly why, but I know he he had a very bad temper and I know he had a knife and I know he was scary to me. I said he was a creep. And so then they then they started asking me more questions, but they they were like not real interested at first until then they started asking me if he wore jewelry and then i said um no not really cuz like i said je- jewelry to me was rings and bracelets and um things like that and then i said no not no but they said did he wear a watch and i said well yeah he had a watch and they said what kind of watch and i said one of these um skin divers watches where the face snaps off of the leather bracelet and it's kind of thick bracelet, and it was uh, like a brown leather, and the face just snapped off. Um, and then they said, then they were interested. Then they perked up, and they said, well, if if you were to see a picture of the watch, would you be able to identify it? I said, well, yeah, because I sat near him at a dinner. When I was was there in Fort Lauderdale, and I said he, and I couldn't help but see the watch, and I thought it was weird because it said so many jewels or something, and I thought jewels meant something sparkly. So they said, well, could you identify them? And I said, yeah, and they left for a little while and brought up a real big picture of this watch face, just the face. And I said, that is absolutely it. And they then they were very interested. Then they started asking me everything about where we met, how we met, what, what kind of a place was this rental place that the guys had. And they said, write down everything you can remember about him, uh, the place uh, that they rented, and everything like that. So then I just proceeded to write down everything that I could think of and they said, we put out an APB on him already. And I thought, whoa, I was <laughs> very surprised. They said, well, why don't you go home, you know, and we'll call you if we need any more information. And they called, oh, I think it was the very next day, and said, we got him in Colorado Springs. So I was shocked and also scared because I didn't know. And then the guy said, we talked to him, we talked to him, and we think that he is our guy. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, we're 99 and 44, 100% sure that he's the guy.
0: Latkin did as was requested of her, writing down everything she remembered about Walden, from his Fort Lauderdale bachelor pad to his arrival in Atlantic City. She has maintained her notes all these years and shared them with me. One of her handwritten notes, taken commensurate with her telephone conversation with the detective, reads that the state police were 99 and 44 100 percent certain Walden was their man. Latkin remembers this phrase so clearly because it was used as an ivory soap commercial jingle back in the 1960s. The notes she kept of her conversation with the detective also indicate that police had gathered half a fingerprint that matched Walden's, she was told, but they couldn't do anything with it because it was only half a print. She also learned that Walden was a schizophrenic and had done a stint at a Milledgeville, Georgia psychiatric hospital. Yet another Atlantic County woman had a run-in with Ronnie Walden during his brief stay in New Jersey. In June 1969, Marjorie Longwood was 20 years old and living with her parents in Egg Harbor City, about 12 miles from Summers Point. She was taking a nap one day in her parents' living room she was awoken by a call from a New Jersey State Police detective. He was interested in learning what Longwood knew about a young drifter from Georgia named Ronald Walden. The name immediately resonated with Longwood. For a few days earlier, a friend had set her up on a date, telling her, you just have to go out with this guy. Walden was driving a motorcycle as he arrived at Longwood's parents' house on Cincinnati Avenue in Egg Harbor City the same small town where Somers Point security guard Albert Hickey ran his furniture store. Garwood thought Walden was nice, but something about him seemed fake. He took her to dinner in Atlantic City and to a movie at one of the theaters along the boardwalk, during which time she continued to feel uneasy. As Walden drove her home on the back of his motorcycle, he inexplicably pulled over to the side of the road beside a rural stretch of woods near the FAA Technical Center the same aviation facility that had produced the aerial map of the parkway crime scene. There didn't sound like anything was wrong with Walden's motorcycle. And for a few seconds, with not a person in sight, Walden peered silently into the woods beside them, saying nothing while Longwood sat terrified on the seat. This is it, she thought. Today I die. She said, quote, I was scared to death. I had very bad vibes, a sick sense he was going to take me into the woods and kill me. Much to Longwood's relief, within a few seconds, while she was certain her date was scanning for the precise location where he'd murder her, Walden rolled the throttle and peeled away, dropping her off at home without further incident. According to her recollection, when Longwood was on the sofa, speaking with the detective on the phone, he told her that her date was a suspect in the parkway slayings and that the state police had matched tracks found in the sand along the parkway to his stolen motorcycle. He also told Longwood that Walden was mentally ill. The young man whom Francine Latkin and Marjorie Longwood are certain murdered Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry was born Thomas Ronald Walden on February 5, 1947, in the southwest Georgia town of Cairo, located 30 miles from Tallahassee, Florida. He grew up among a loving family in the northwest section of town. His father was a career Navy man relocating his brood to bases all over the world in locales as exotic as Panama before returning stateside. He settled in Cairo like generations of Waldens before him. When I first began investigating Ronnie Walden, I could think of no right place to start. I had never even heard of Cairo, Georgia, let alone anybody who called it home. On a lark, one day I called what I remember was Cairo City Hall. The extraordinarily gracious young woman who answered, said that she'd known Ronnie Walden's brother, who died a few years earlier, falling out a tree stand while hunting. Another Walden, she said, might be able to help. And with that simple relay of information, I was introduced to Kathy Moore, the sister of former Pittsburgh Steelers punter Robert, the toe from Cairo, Walden, a distant cousin of Ronnie's. Kathy Moore didn't mince words when she recalled Walden. Ronnie Walden was mean as a snake, she told me, describing him as underhanded and sneaky. She remembered a young man who broke into houses in his spare time, stole guns, and regularly shoplifted. A former neighbor of Walden's, Ceres Moyer, remains convinced to this day that Ronnie cruelly shot her riding horse between the eyes for no reason, and local police agree with her. They could never prove it, however, and no charges were brought. After the incident, Moyer never went near Walden again. I have always felt he was strange. I always had a funny feeling about him. He was the type of person who, if he offered you a ride, you wouldn't get in the car with him. You just had that feeling about him, something that scares you. I can't explain it. Luann Halstead dated Walden while the two were classmates at Cairo High School. Barney was sort of Mr. Everything in high school, she said. A star athlete and a top student, Walden had aspirations of one day playing football at nearby Florida State University. Though he was able to fake a certain sincerity and southern charm, townsfolk, and women especially, came to know a far darker side that with his good looks and natural charm, Ronnie Walden was effortlessly able to conceal. They went steady during his senior year, but when she returned home during her freshman year, Halstead said she noticed that her former boyfriend had fell under the sway of dramatic mood swings. He was missing classes. He'd gotten a girl pregnant and the baby was stillborn. The football scholarship he'd hoped was forthcoming from Florida State didn't materialize. Instead, scouts arrived in droves to witness the exploits of Walden's teammate, future NFL Hall of Fame guard Bill Stanfill. In the meantime, Luann broke up with Walden, for she'd fallen for a classmate at Florida State. When she visited home, she would find Walden following her in his car. I would come up upon him driving around town, she told me. I'd be at an intersection in a neighborhood And all of a sudden, there he was. That frightened me. He didn't wave, he just stared at me. Walden decided to enter the armed services like his father, enlisting in the Air Force. But soon after his enlistment, it became evident that the rigor of a structured military life held little appeal for him. In 1966, he went AWOL from Turner Air Force Base and was sentenced to six months hard labor at Fort Benning. He was issued a bad conduct discharge upon his release, It was soon after the discharge that he completed a stint at the Georgia State Mental Hospital. Whether he voluntarily committed himself or his discharge was a condition of his release from the Fort Benning Stockade is unclear from the record. Walden's whereabouts were uncertain after his release from the asylum until he landed in Fort Lauderdale in the spring of 1969. On Monday, June 30, 1969, exactly one month after the Parkway murders, and following his swift exit from Atlantic City, Walden surfaced at a Glenwood Springs, Colorado car dealer, driving a Jeep. When Walden failed to return after a test drive, the salesman realized that the car that Walden had driven to the dealership had a Tennessee dealer's plate. The Glenwood Police Department issued an APB. He was picked up by the Aspen Police Department and driven back to Glenwood Springs. A routine fingerprint check was submitted to the FBI, who informed Glenwood authorities that Walden was wanted for questioning in the murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry in New Jersey. Armed with knowledge of Francine Latkin's statement and having confirmed Walden's location in Colorado, New Jersey State Police Detectives James Toth and William Hunter boarded a flight from New Jersey to Aspen on July 3rd to question Walden and have him submit to a polygraph exam. Les Ecker was undersheriff of the Garfield County Sheriff's Office in 1969. On the evening of July 3rd, and the hours before detectives Toth and Hunter were scheduled to arrive, Ecker received a frantic call from the sheriff's police dispatcher. She alerted him that an inmate had just attempted to hang himself in the local jail. Ecker, in his own words, lit up the car and came flying in as he lived nearby. Sheriff Ralph Baker was already at the scene by the time Ecker arrived to assist him. Walden had removed the wool blanket from his bunk, loosened the threading around the edges where it had been hemmed, then tore it into a six-inch-wide strip that he weaved through the cell bars, fashioning a noose. Ecker and Baker cut the noose off Walden's throat, and the sheriff immediately began resuscitation. His lips were blue and his fingernails were blue, Ecker said. We both struggled to get the damn thing from around his neck. He had it right around his Adam's apple. I've always wondered what possessed Ronnie Walden to try and kill himself just before the arrival of the New Jersey authorities. Was it a guilty conscience? A desperate attempt to forestall the lie detector test? Nevertheless, two days after he was cleared by medical authorities and returned to his cell, Walden agreed to sit for the polygraph. Two surreal aspects of the attempted suicide have always resonated with me. First, for me at least, wasn't the hanging itself. Rather, the realization that the Philadelphia newspapers had completely misreported the sequence of events. According to a report in the Philadelphia Daily News, Ronnie Walden tried to hang himself after he'd taken, and allegedly passed, the lie detector test. He had just been cleared of the Memorial Day murders of two 19-year-old co-eds, the article read, but Thomas R. Walden had something else haunting him as he fashioned his blanket into a noose and tried to end his life. Les Ecker is certain that the suicide attempt took place just prior to the arrival of the New Jersey State Police, for the polygraph test was administered in his office, a naturally lit room with a scenic view of the Colorado River. Moreover, he remembered that Walden, quote, had a hell of a time talking because he had squeezed his Adam's apple so bad that he constricted his vocal cords, Egger said. Another reason the former undersheriff remembered the hanging incident so well is that Walden tried to kill himself in the very same cell where serial killer Ted Bundy, another suspect in the Parkway slayings, would escape eight years later, shimmying through a hole in the ceiling on a snowy December night in 1977 before hightailing it down to Florida, where he would go on to murder Florida State sorority sisters Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman. A report of Walden's suicide attempt, published in the local Glenwood Springs Sage Reminder, corroborates Les Ecker's recollection from that evening. The article read that Sheriff Baker, quote, foiled the attempt, gave Walden artificial respiration, and called a doctor who pronounced him in good health. The lie detector test went off without further mishap, and the New Jersey authorities left assured that Walden was not their man. On July 20, 1969, Georgia high school teacher Katie Birdwell was introduced to Walden through a mutual friend while he was out on bail before his sentencing in Colorado. It was the night of the Apollo 11 moon landing, with several people gathered at the friend's apartment. As Birdwell and Walden got to talking, they couldn't avoid the topic of the Parkway murders, as everyone knew he was a suspect. Several years ago, I interviewed Birdwell about the night she first met Walden. She said, We talked about these murders because that's what he had been accused of. He said, That's ridiculous. I don't even know these girls. On September 19, 1969, Walden returned to Colorado, pleading guilty to federal charges of interstate transportation of a stolen motor vehicle. In 1971, Walden and Katie Birdwell were married, And she became pregnant with his child in 1973. The advent of fatherhood and the promise of a new life did little to reform Walden. He fled Georgia before his son was born and between 1973 and 1980 served time in state and federal prisons in Texas, Florida, Georgia, Missouri, and Kansas on auto theft and deception charges. In late July 1980, while in Reno, Nevada, Walden met an Oregon woman telling her that he was a doctor promising that he would come to Oregon to see her. He did, arriving in a stolen Porsche. A friend of the woman had alerted authorities beforehand, suspicious of the too-good-to-be-true interloper. A check of the Tennessee license plates revealed that the car was stolen. Police found a gun and barbiturates in the car. Walden was sentenced to the Oregon State Penitentiary, where he scored a 127 on a psychometric evaluation known as the Otis Test, placing him in the very superior range of intelligence. In 1984, Walden escaped from an unsupervised paint crew while at a Tennessee jail. He stole a car and made his way to Somerville, South Carolina, where he shot a realtor point blank in the head during an attempted robbery when he wouldn't turn over his wallet. On the run again, he was apprehended in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, after a prolonged foot chase when a police K-9 took him down. He was promptly extradited to South Carolina, where he had been sentenced to life in prison for the murder of the realtor. While in prison, Walden was able to con the warden into giving him $200 cash for the ostensible purpose of buying a handgun thought to be in possession of one of the inmates. The gun never turned up, and Walden absconded with the $200. On August 9, 1989, a 42-year-old Walden rose from his bunk and removed the missing twenty-five caliber automatic from within the portable radio where he'd hidden it. While in the prison furniture-making wood shop, he held the shop supervisor and a fellow inmate hostage for 12 hours. After releasing them, he pointed the gun at himself. His older brother, Roy, was allowed to speak to Ronnie by phone and tried to talk some sense into him. Walden, however, was delusional, his speech marked with gibberish. An hour into their conversation, Walden killed himself. Whatever secrets Ronnie Walden held regarding the Parkway murders were silenced by the bullet that fired into his skull. Katie Birdwell remains unconvinced that her late husband murdered Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. I never thought he killed those girls, she told me. That's just my gut feeling. That's not him. I never saw any anger in him, and believe me, I pushed him to the limit. Rage wasn't one of his emotions. When apprised of Walden's connections to the Parkway murders, a former Cairo High classmate said, I'd always figured he'd left a string of murders. Ronnie could kill somebody without batting an eye. I'd put nothing past him, and I've been saying that my whole life. When she learned that he'd killed himself, Ceres Moyer, Walden's former Cairo neighbor, said, I remember my first response was, good. I would wish harm on nobody. I'm a kind person, but I felt this world had been ridden of an evil force. Francine Latkin remains the only person to positively identify Ronnie's watch as the same model and type found near the crime scene along milepost 31.9. She also remembered that the watch had been attached to a leather band on Walden's wrist. These mod bands, as they were known in the 1960s, secured the watch face to the leather band by way of a snap, suggesting that if the perpetrator were in fact Walden, the watch might have snapped off in the woods during a struggle. Summers Point Diner waitress Betty Filling, who'd served both Davis and Perry when they first arrived in town on May 27, 1969, before checking into their Ocean City boarding house, shared with me a memory she never told the New Jersey State Police. About a week after the murders, after a passable calm had returned to Ocean City and Summers Point, Filling was working behind the diner pastry counter when she noticed something unusual about the young man seated in the swivel chair at the end of the counter. Filling said that he had blonde hair, was about 22 years old, and nice looking. His face, however, was laced with red scratches and cuts. Normally, such a person wouldn't have provoked a second thought. But after he left, Filling wondered whether his wounds were actually fingernail scratches and if he was Susan and Elizabeth's murderer. As for Walden's part in the murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, Francine Latkin told me, I never felt that strongly about something in my entire life. I haven't wavered. I want the case to be solved. If you're enjoying this topic and want to learn even more about the unsolved murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, you should check out my book, The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, published by Wild Blue Press and available on Amazon in print, audio, and ebook formats. The book is also available for sale at Sunrose Words and Music on Asbury Avenue in Ocean City, New Jersey. You will find links to these sites, as well as a catalog of other true crime podcasts where I've discussed the Parkway murders at www.christianbarthauthor.com.